Good evening and welcome. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, for the second time today to worship and praise our glorious King. Amen. I would invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. It'll be the psalm for this Sunday in the Psalms. <clears throat> and if you would, out of respect for the holiness of God and his inerrant word, I would ask that you stand for the reading of Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We pray that you would do a work in us as we study your inerrant, infallible word. Lord, please bless this time together as we learn all that you have given to us, Lord, in this precious psalm. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Once again, we come to another familiar psalm, and my prayer for our time together this evening is that we would consider this psalm afresh. We would not rely merely on our familiarity of it, which can at times lead to complacency. Psalm 51 is by far the most well-known and well-recognized of the penitential psalms. And it is a psalm that we know has a very clear link to historical events. For the sake of our shortened time this evening, we will not read the whole account of David's sin with Bathsheba, but we will read what the Lord says to David through Nathan the prophet in response to David's sin. You're welcome to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 9. And Nathan had just delivered the parable of the rich man and the poor man. And seething with anger, David says the man deserves to die. And Nathan hits him with the words, you are the man. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Just some light reading to prepare us for our exposition of Psalm 51 together. Amen. But context is key, so there it was. And it does get us in the right mindset to look at what David pens in Psalm 51. David, King David, David the man after God's own heart, David the warrior king, David the shepherd king was at least at one very prominent point in his life, David the backslidden king. While we may think that his sin is so much worse than our own, Beloved, the hope in going through this psalm together is that we would recognize sin for what it is. We would need to make confession and repentance of our habitual and besetting sins, however difficult a priority in our lives. Back to 2 Samuel, David was a sinful man despite being forgiven of God, right? He is a warrior king that decided to stay home while the army went and fought battle. He happened to have a balcony on his roof that happened to look upon the place where a beautiful, young, naked woman happened to be bathing. He lusted after her. Depending on your reading of the text, he possibly raped her. He definitely seduced her into sexual intercourse with him and got her pregnant. In a vain attempt to cover up his sins, he arranged for the murder of Uriah, her husband, thereby committing murder in his own heart de facto. He quickly married Bathsheba to cover up the pregnancy to make it look legitimate that is in wedlock. However, the baby that was conceived did die just as God promised. Evil did rise up from within his house just as God promised. There are temporal earthly consequences to our sin. We know that Psalm 51 was written about a year after this scandalous event. In that year, David became so miserably distraught and inconsolable over what he had done. He became obsessed over this sin. It weighed him down. For one year, David wrestled with the depths of his own unrighteousness. The title of our message tonight in your pamphlet is Broken Sinners Before a Merciful God. May the Lord provide us with a clearer understanding of this psalm and his gift of repentance in our lives. For those of you note takers, you'll notice in the pamphlet that this glorious psalm is broken down for us into four sections. Praying for forgiveness, praying for restoration, praying for obedience, and praying for the body of believers. A few months ago, we worked our way through Psalm 139. And our prayer from that evening was to ask the Lord to reveal in us any unconfessed sin, any evil, grievous, or hurtful way within us. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you'll know that the Christian life is marked by continual confession and repentance. The hope is that over time through prayer, being saturated with the word that we would be continually sanctified, that is that we would grow in practical righteousness. We would put to death the old self. We would stop 
making the same mistakes before God that we are so accustomed to. Lather, rinse, repeat. It is a constant battle, namely because we will not be removed from the presence of sin until we are met by the Lord in glory. Amen. While we are positionally righteous by double imputation, that is that great exchange of Christ's righteousness being applied to our account and our sins being applied to his, practically, we're not there yet. We have not arrived. We do still struggle with sin. But praise God that we do struggle, amen? If we didn't struggle with sin, if it did not affect us, we'd have some very serious questions to ask ourselves about whether or not we were truly saved and in the faith. Spiritual maturity is marked by sensitivity to sin, as we learned this morning. We need to come to grips with the reality of our sinfulness. We need to be honest with ourselves, and most importantly, we must be honest before God. Proverbs 28, 13 shows us that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, something that we should make mention of at the onset of our study this evening is that here in Psalm 51, we are not talking about the repentance that we experienced on the day of our salvation. And while that is likely a very memorable event in all of our lives, it is not the focus that David makes in Psalm 51. What we are talking about is the daily life of the believer, the practical application of routine confession and repentance. If not, not if, but when we sin. Whether we dip our toes into darkness or if we don't take heed and fall into habitual regular sin. That said, there is not differing levels, types, or degrees of repentance. True repentance always comes from God. It is a gift as a result of his kindness towards us. The hope is that we would have a clearer view of this doctrine as we look at Holy Scripture together this evening. And with that, let's look at our first section of Psalm 51, the prayer for forgiveness, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David begins with a cry for forgiveness, appealing to God's mercy and compassion, his steadfast love. He does this because he cannot appeal to anything else. He cannot appeal to the law of God. He cannot appeal to the justice of God, for if he did, he would be condemned to death and judgment, for the wages of sin is death. David is guilty, guilty through and through, no matter how you slice it. So David begs, he pleads for mercy, knowing that he deserves the death penalty and to suffer eternally. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. God is merciful, amen? David continues, blot out my transgressions. To blot meaning to remove or to strike from or obliterate completely from record. Interestingly, it's the same verb in Hebrew used in Genesis chapter seven, describing how God would send the flood to blot out every living thing from the face of the ground. In this stanza, we see the words transgressions, iniquity, sin, all of which encompass the same concept and that is evil within us and against our holy God. 
We have crossed the line which God has commanded us not to. We have stained our garments with filth from within. We have made an abomination before holy God. We need our account wiped clean. The stanza is concluded with a cry from David, a cry from David to God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity and cleanse him from his sin. We're going to look at the difference between the words washing and cleansing. Washing, for any unfamiliar with the art of doing laundry, requires agitation, requires friction. In David's time, clothes would be taken to a river or stream and then beaten and scraped over rocks. Sanctification hurts. Mortifying the flesh hurts, but it is necessary. As a culture today, we seek to avoid pain wherever possible. We live in the culture of take two and call me in the morning. May that never be the way within the church, amen? Pain is important. It teaches us things. Could you imagine if we forgot what hot felt like? We would constantly burn ourselves. It's good that we remember our sin so that we can learn from it and avoid repeating it in the future. Cleansing, in verse 2, is used to denote the need for purification. To cleanse in this sense is to make ready ceremonially. We'll dive deeper into ceremonial purification later in the text, so let's continue in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When caught in sin, how quick are we to try and hide it? or to blame others. Back in the garden, Adam blamed Eve and blamed God. It was the woman that you gave me. Subsequently, Eve blamed the serpent for being crafty and deceiving. And in both cases, they failed. Adam thereby forfeit dominion over the whole earth as a result. He failed as our representative head and both were accountable to the command that the Lord had given and failed. Here in Psalm 51, we see quite the opposite. David owns it. He can give no defense and he knows it. His sin is ever before him. He cannot hide from it, nor can he hide it from God. He owns sin for what it is. <clears throat> he rightly says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, did David sin against Bathsheba? Did he sin against Uriah? Did he sin against the nation? I believe so. But ultimately, he knows that sin is first and foremost an affront to a holy God. Keep in mind that as we pray for confession and repentance in our lives, we need to see sin for what it is. We must see God for who he is. And in light of who God is, we must see ourselves for who we are. True repentance is rooted in knowing that you are completely deserving of death and judgment. God is completely justified in sending unrepentant sinners to eternal damnation. There is no wrongdoing on his account. Amen. David sees his need for a savior. He sees his need for Messiah. His sin is ever before him. He is ruined. He is depressed. He is broken. Psalm 51 is a beautifully poignant, poetic picture of brokenness. And brokenness is a proper response to our sin. Isaiah, when confronted over his position before holy, holy, holy God, says of himself, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 of his own sinfulness, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
It's time to check your vital signs, beloved. Ask yourselves, do I have remorse over sin? Am I broken over it? David continues in verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. While the actions of David with Bathsheba recorded for us in 2 Samuel are sinful, David properly identifies that the physical outcropping of those events are just the byproduct of a deeper issue. They are the symptoms, not the disease. Sin is not surface level. And while some sins are visual and blatant and obvious to us, all sin at its core stems from an issue with the heart. Beloved, did you know that we are all born with a congenital heart defect called total depravity? Our propensity towards iniquity is an inherited trait passed down from the first Adam. Remember, 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 we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Amen? Verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And here David likens his sin to that of leprosy, a degenerative disease marked by corrupted flesh, easy to spread a painful life and a guaranteed death. In Leviticus 14.51, we read that hyssop was specifically required by God to be used to sprinkle blood on a house that had leprosy in it. The use of hyssop indicated that a ceremonial cleansing needed to take place. The hyssop didn't do anything in and of itself. God would provide the cleansing through the blood. In the same way, it's mentioned that while on the cross, Jesus was given sour wine on a hyssop branch, which I believe is no mere coincidence. David's leprous heart, our leprous hearts, we are in need of the same sprinkling of blood, the cleansing that only the blood of Christ can provide. Back in verse eight of Psalm 51, we see David asking to hear joy and gladness and to rejoice. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Who broke his bones, beloved? God did in love and justifiably so. Yet David knows that it is to the same God that he must confess and repent to. It is the same God that can make him whole again. Oh, my fellow sinners, if, if we sin, when we foul up, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit of our daily wickedness and we know that we need to be restored, run. Run with all your might back to the cross. Fall down prostrate before the Lord, before his throne of grace and pray for repentance. Confess your sins. and He is faithful and just to forgive. Now confession, just for clarity's sake, is acknowledging our sin before the Lord. It is not a spectacle. It is not a public event. We do not need confessionals, cardinals, or popes to relay our sin to God we have no need to sit in a wooden box in the back of the sanctuary and mumble our problems to a heretic in a funny hat. No, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, amen? Listen to what David says of this great Lord in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Amen. Did we hear anything in there about absolution or penance or recitation of Hail Mary's? No, it's not there. What we did hear is that the agent of our redemption is God and God alone. It is his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his long suffering, his compassion. Everything we need, everything David needed is supplied by God through Christ. Which leads us to verse 10, the halfway point of the psalm in the start of section two, a prayer for restoration. Verse 10, David cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are corrupted. We have a bad hard drive. We are in need of a heart transplant, amen? However, our corruptness and our unworthiness should be the platform for our worship. We are undeserving as recipients of divine grace. David knew this, and as a true worshiper, he understood the wretchedness of his own heart. David hated unrighteousness within himself, and he knows that he needs God to cleanse his heart and to refresh his spirit. In verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, believers, you know that for those whose salvation was purchased by the blood of the lamb, that their eternal rest is secured. Nothing can remove the Holy Spirit from a true believer once they have been granted salvation. Amen? So what is David saying here? Now it is true that while we cannot do anything to alter or disrupt our everlasting union with God that was forged by the blood of his son on the cross, Scripture does teach that we can disrupt our communion with God. Unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin in the life of a believer is a disruption in our communion with God and it distorts the very presence of God. That is our view of God. For example, if we look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to put it lightly, the church in Corinth had some issues. One among them was improperly taking the Lord's Supper. In Paul's rebuke of the church, he says in verse 28 of chapter 11, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And during our corporate time of taking the Lord's Supper, we ask that if there is any unrepentant or unconfessed sin in your life that you let the supper pass, only partaking after repenting of sin. That which is broken must be restored. We cannot keep driving around with our check engine lights on. David follows this. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, what is he referring to here? Well, it's not the removal of the Holy Spirit from him in a salvific sense. As we've already stated, that is not possible. What he's referring to here is the unique theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment provided by the Holy Spirit was essential in the function of Israel's theocracy. Sinful humans lack the capacity to lead God's people properly. 
Theocratic anointing is provisional, which means that it can be changed, altered, or removed at any time as the Spirit deems fit. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, we see that the Spirit rushed upon David at his own anointing and that the Spirit departed from Saul. David knew this, he remembered this, he knows that this can happen and he absolutely is fearful that it would happen to him as a consequence of his sin. He continues in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you recall from the opening of our study this evening, Psalm 51 was written about a year after the events of Nathan the prophet. One year that David was utterly broken over his sin now, he had not lost his salvation, but he sure had lost the joy of it. What a terrible state to be in. We read in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yet for David, heaven's riches seemed a far off reality. He knew the immeasurable joy of salvation and so asked to be restored in such a way that he could once again enjoy it just as he did at first that his spirit within him would be renewed and no longer downcast. Moving from reconciliation, we now start section three, which is a prayer for obedience. In verse 13, David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. In the first half of this stanza, we see David's proclamation of the goodness of God. Now, David is not implying that there is some transactional or conditional relationship with God. That is, if God does this, then David does that. No. What David realizes here is that God is faithful and just to forgive him his sin. And so, by confessing, repenting, and being restored to fellowship, he can therefore properly sing God's praises. He can effectively teach other sinners. He can preach, that is, declare the goodness of God and his heart can properly sing of all that God has done for him. God is perfect, holy, and true. We will get into proper and improper worship here in a bit, but the theme is the same here. Our worship, our usefulness to the church, our testimony and our witness to the lost, they are prone to being rendered ineffective if we are walking and unrepentant sin. Believers, we are not merely professors of faith. There is a difference between professing faith and actually possessing the faith that you profess. Amen? The second half of this stanza deals with our worship to God. Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Succinctly put, we see here that merely giving a sacrifice or burnt offering does not indicate that true repentance has occurred. These things in and of themselves are insufficient. If they were sufficient, David would gladly do that instead. It'd be much easier on his state of brokenness. Now we see here that only a broken and contrite heart are acceptable. In defining terms, contrite or contrition has its root in the Latin verb contrere, which means to grind down. Contrition is true repentance. The self-justification of sin 
the wrong attitudes, unsound thoughts that perpetuated that sin have been ground down, destroyed. The proverbial soil in the field of the heart has been tilled and made ready for the good seed to be planted again. Now, attrition, on the other hand, is merely saying, I'm sorry. It's having a false desire to not sin. However, the reasoning behind it is anything but the love of God. For example, I shouldn't do this. What if somebody were to find out? That's not godly grief. That's worldly grief, and worldly grief leads to death. True repentance is a broken and contrite heart before God. God will not despise. If you were to flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we do see that word despised used twice. In verse 9, God through Nathan says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And again in verse 10, Because you despised me. What David knows to be true in his heart, despite his many sins against the Lord, is that God will never repay evil with evil. What abundant mercy we have in Christ. Amen. It is because of this great truth that we respond in worship. However, sin is a hindrance to true worship. If we have unconfessed sin, much like the example earlier with the Lord's Supper, our worship can be distorted. We learned in the book of Malachi last year that God is not pleased with and does not accept worship from hearts that despise him. There's that word again. If you remember in Malachi chapter one, the Lord rebukes the priest for despising his name. They ask, but how have we despised your name? And he answers, by offering polluted food on my altar. When you offer blind, sick, or lame animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Worship of God has always been a matter of the heart. Worshiping him with your time, your talents, your treasure is a matter of the heart. Offering our first fruits to God is a matter of the heart. May we be reminded of this and thank God that his mercies are new every morning. Amen. Which brings us to the last section of the psalm in verses 18 and 19. A prayer for the body of believers. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Up until this point, David's prayer has been personal. A prayer for forgiveness, a prayer for restoration, a prayer for obedience. Here we see a shift as the psalm closes to a prayer for the body, a supplication for God's people. As the shepherd king, David was responsible for the care and the protection of God's people. And his sin brought judgment and trouble upon the people in a very unique way. In a similar, albeit lesser, comparison, our sin affects the church. We sin against each other. We pray that those who we trespass against would forgive us, and we forgive those that trespass against us. Where permitted, we confess to one another. Where permitted, we pray for reconciliation with one another. And we pray that others would not fall into the same sins that we struggle with. We are all members of one body, amen. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In closing, David knew the sacrificial system pointed to Messiah. He was looking forward knowing that the gore, that is the spilling of blood for the atonement of sin, 
that supplying the means of salvation would cost God dearly. Grace is not cheap, amen. Only Christ's innocent blood can remove human guilt. Only Christ's perfect record of righteousness can atone for sin. And only Christ's spirit can regenerate our hearts. Christ was, is, and will always be the only sacrifice that God has permanently delighted in. So here it is all wrapped up for us with a bow. Romans chapter three, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beloved, are our lives changed by the gospel? While we champion the fact that Christ has paid for our sins past, present, and future, may we be reminded that this is not a license to sin more that grace may abound. By no means. May we seek to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. May our worship be unhindered and a delight, a fragrant offering. May we be sensitive to our sin, quick to confess, and make repentance a habitual exercise in our life. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Christ, and may we never, never lose sight of the cost of our redemption on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty and all that you have shown throughout history in using examples such as the, the King David, Lord, a man after your own heart who could fall so hard and yet provide such a model of prayer for us to confess and repent of our sin before you. Lord, we are, we are sinful, even despite being justified. We will struggle with this until you call us home or you return. Lord, we pray that what we have learned this evening would resonate within us, that we would use this teaching practically. And Lord, that we would take this and, and teach it to one another, that our church would grow as a result. Lord, we thank you. You are good. You are holy. We love you because you first loved us. We pray this all according to the blood of your son, Jesus, which has cleansed us from every sin. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.